0: Hello and welcome to Nurturing Neurodiversity with me, sammy Ann from Map And
1: Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions.
0: We'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we speak from today. Where I am in Nam or Melbourne, I acknowledge the Boon people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and recognise sovereignty was never ceded.
1: Where I'm in the Gambri or Canberra, I acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional custodians of the land on which we speak from today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today with us.
0: As you may know, I'm sami Ann, parent guide and founder of Map The Maze. Over the past 16 years, I have immersed myself in the world of learning and development as a student, a teacher, a mother and a mentor. I have explored how we learn through the lens of education, psychology, neurodiversity and disability. As well as documented learning by way of a Bachelor of Early Childhood Education and a Graduate Diploma in Psychology, I am also an avid consumer of books, articles and others' experiences. I love to share the knowledge I have gained over the years and find that one or two key pieces of information can make a world of difference to the families I work with. My clients are usually parents who are seeking guidance in the best ways to support their children in the realms of neurodivergence, learning and behaviour. I generally don't have all of the answers, but I do have plenty of specific questions which serves to guide you to your own answers that fit you and your family best.
1: And as I already mentioned, I'm Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions. I work with those who are neurodivergent to help them navigate their landscape throughout life. Over the last six years, I've created the Family Joy Program, successfully completed many times by many families. I've been interviewed by both national radio and overseas and also presented at several conferences, both nationally and overseas. I'm currently completing a graduate diploma in counseling to better support my clients. Typically, I support children and their families young adults who are all struggling to fit into the world around them. I help them gain clarity, self-love, the skill set to take control of their lives and feel confident in the journey they are on. I work directly with clients who often compliment me with the words you just get it and I do just get it because I have both personal and professional experience of living with neurodivergence myself and having neurodivergent family members. I love what I do and it fills my me up to work in this space
0: we've come together to speak about nurturing neurodiversity all the ways we can create a truly inclusive society with this podcast we aim to educate inspire and create social change
1: through sharing stories experiences and research we challenge current systems and open dialogue on what we can all do to create change we hope you will join us on our journey
0: Welcome to our Nurturing Neurodiversity podcast with me, sammy Ann from Map the Maze and Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions. Tonight we wanted to have a bit of a chat about what we like to call co-occurring conditions, often in the allied health industry and the medical industry. They're known as comorbid conditions, uh, but we prefer the term co-occurring conditions because um, we, we were discussing just before we jumped on tonight that um a lot of the time you know a diagnosis of autism for example um, often doesn't come with just autism there's often a lot of other things that can also be going on for for a person um, and we really want to talk about that i had a little bit of a look at some statistics and 30 to 80 percent of people who have autism also meet the criteria for adhd and conversely 20 to 50 percent of people who have adhd also meet the criteria for autism so we know and, you know, colloquially, colloquially we know that, you know, autism and ADHD can co-occur a high percentage of the time. We know, know that from working with people, from, you know, talking with families and, um, and seeing that a lot in the industry. But it's really interesting, I think, to hear the statistics, to you know that how often that actually can happen. Um, and, you know, it, it makes us really think about what are some of the other things that we see quite a lot with the children and families that we work with. Um, so Patricia, I know you have been talking a lot with families recently um, in particular about this. Um, are there any, you know, things that you want to sort of start off by talking about?
1: Yeah, I'd, um, I think, you know, it's what you're saying too, that um, the autism and ADHD, what, what I would like is to um, have our, our, our listeners realise or, uh, create knowledge around the fact that um, getting the autism or the ADHD or a combined di- diagnosis of autism and ADHD is a really, really small piece of the puzzle um, of, um, or, or, you know, a, a small piece of uh, who your child is and what might also be sitting uh, with them Um, as as far as co-occurring conditions are concerned, that might be be affecting their ability to learn, their ability to uh, socially interact uh, in society and, you know, in the classroom or with their friends and things like that, Uh, and also um, just generally um, having really an effect on on their their day-to-day living. And for for our listeners to to realise that, um the the i think the additional levels of stress that having these co-occurring conditions uh can you know can create or or can bring on but um but also uh particularly if they're they're undiagnosed and that they haven't been picked up um at the time of diagnosis and then you might notice um, something with your child and then you might realise that um, they have one of these other mm. uh, co-occurring conditions. So, yeah, so I think that, yeah, but I'm just, and it's because, um, you know, for our listeners, the reason why I suggested why we talk about this in this podcast episode is because I'm seeing a lot of it occurring in my work that I went in, in some of the families and 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 some of the, Client, clients that I've been working with, and so and then, um, you know, I also think it causes a lot of guilt for parents too when they miss things like dyslexia, let's say, or dysgraphia, or dyscalculia, things like that, um, and you know they feel guilty, and <clears throat> that's another um uh, issue that concerns me as well because if if it's not being discussed in the initial diagnosis process. Mm. Um, you know or not being discussed or suggested when the, when you first get that diagnosis, you're not going to know that that most people wouldn't know that, mm. that we have these co current yeah, conditions it, that it, set. when you
0: were saying that, I was thinking <coughs> yes i I know that experience and and you know there's so many things that especially mums, but parents you know get the guilt over, but I just like to sort of throw that back on well, if the professional that you're working with is not picking that up. How uh, are you expected to pick that up? Do you know what I mean? Uh, there are, there are lots of these things that, you know, that, that parents are often hearing about the first time when, you know, when we bring it up that, you know, they've not heard of, of, you know, dyslexia or well often dyslexia they've heard of because it's quite a, a common one, but dyscalculia dysgraphia, like there's lots of different versions uh, of in, when we're talking about learning difficulties that, uh, you know, if you just never even heard of it, how are you expected to sort of pick it up in your own child? Um uh, so, yes, it does make it hard, but I think we really have a system that's set up to go, okay, um, you know, there's questions around what's happening for this child. So we go through the assessment process, we get the diagnosis, and then here's your here's your therapy plan. You go off and see your speech, you go off and see your OT, and you go off and see your psych, and, you know, great, go enjoy that. And actually, you know, th- that doesn't necessarily work, and, and we actually need to have a different kind of plan for each child, and that plan is going to change like sometimes weekly, like it depends on
2: Mm.
0: how the journey is going for that particular child. Mm. Um, And yes, I think it's really interesting that, you know, we kind of have this idea. And I think, you know, certainly in the, you know, experiences that I have talked about with, um, you know, different families and, and sort of seen in my work that often it takes so long to get to that point of getting a diagnosis, because often you're not listened to, or it's not you know not always communicated in those early years. And but even when you get a diagnosis early, it's it's often almost you know for some families it's traumatic, but it's also can be a relief to go. Oh, okay, there's a reason for these behaviors. There's a reason my child finds these things so hard, and it's nothing to do with parenting. It's nothing to do with you know <laughs> anything that we're doing. It's just that they actually just find these things really hard, and we can find mm. ways around that. But then sometimes I think we take that answer a little bit too far in that we go well you know, my child's finding this hard, that's because they have autism Um, or, you know, it's because they're autistic. That's not, and and we sort of stop there instead of going, well, in this moment right now, why is my child behaving like this? What is this behaviour telling me? And we talk about this all the time, don't we, in this podcast that, um, and just in our general conversations too, (laughs) that, you know, remaining curious in your parenting or or in any position where you're working with a child and trying to find out the why in any given moment is so important to your relationship with them, with them. How you can support them. Um, you know how you can really, you know, figure out how best uh. to support that child. Because if you're asking the whys all the time, then you're looking at the child in that moment. You're not looking at the child six months ago when they got a diagnosis, or ten years ago when they got uh. a diagnosis. Like you're looking at what's happening right now in this environment. No. You know, in the in the wider sort of community. Especially at the moment, globally, almost, (laughs) you know, things that are filtering down and trickling down to all of us. Um, I just, you know, keeping that curiosity, keeping that curiosity, and keeping the idea of why in your head um, is Mm. so powerful to actually look at it. And and you know, getting getting a label, getting a diagnosis is often really helpful in that it gives you some ideas around why things might be difficult. It gives you some ideas of with what types of things they might find difficult. Um, it gives you some ideas of what types of supports you can seek out. And often it will give you access to funding to seek those supports out, but it's not the end of the story, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And even like, even just now, even as you've um, been speaking, I've, you know, I've got the different uh, brain neurodivergent, divergent, conditions that can sit with autism and ADHD written down to talk to our audience about. But even when you were just speaking just now, what came into my mind as well was also, you know, something like auditory processing and how that will affect a child's learning. And, you know, for, um, you know, so that our listeners are aware that auditory processing isn't just listening and what you hear, but it's actually how your brain, your brain is receiving that auditory information that's taking in and it's not just speaking, auditory processing also has to do with all the sounds, environmental sounds, uh, you know, that, we, that our brain is filtering that information every day on a, on a daily basis. And if you're not receiving, your brain isn't, sorry, receiving that information in the way that it typically should, it can make focus in the classroom really difficult. It can make learning really difficult. So even to be aware that, um, you know, that there are that there are people that, that you know, professionally you and I both know, but Alice's might not, that they're called sound therapists, that there's sound therapy to help with those auditory processing issues. So, you know, that comes back to that thing of you get your ASD and ADHD diagnosis, but some Sometimes you really really need to dive deeper to see what's going on that might be affecting because then you know if and I know we spoke, we've spoken about this with a few of the people that we've interviewed that if if a child is sitting there stressed out in a classroom because they're not processing auditory information properly or they're having uh difficulty with um, you know if they have sensory issues or then they have issues like dysgraphia or dyscalculia that they're not going to they're going to be so stressed out about th- those things that they you know at that point might not know that they've got they just know that something is impacting them in the classroom and then they're not going to learn there's no way they can receive information if they're they're sitting there trying to uh yeah. overcome these you know learning um things that are inhibiting their learning that that they don't know about yet or that their, their parents don't know about um, I think you know that's really really critical um, and and then that then of course then leads to other issues such as anxiety uh, because if you they'll, they'll then cause you to be walking into school every day in, a, in an anxious state
0: Mm, mm. I, we will get into that in a minute, Patricia. But I did just want to. Um, a lot of the things you were saying, then we're bringing things up, and yes. I think it really highlights the There's a few things that came to my mind. It highlights why the why is so important, because we often say that you know if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. There's a big catch cry that goes around the whole you know the whole profession yeah. really about that. Yes. And the reason why that's a catch cry is because everybody brain is different it's why we say neurodiversity because every brain is wired differently every brain responds differently to their different environments they have different struggles at different times Um, and so you know if we're picturing a child sitting in the classroom who's staring out the window um, and not appearing to just not be engaged in the work not listening to the teacher the why behind that can have as many different reasons as there are, you know, seconds in a mm. millennia like this. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be all of those things. It can be just one of those things. It can be, you know, that there's overstimulation or understimulation and, the, you know, the way that the brain is receiving information can change, you know, even within the person, you know, maybe mm. regularly they, they really struggle with auditory processing but then for whatever reason on one day they hear something really well and then you know that uh, they need the music going in the background or something to be able to hear the thing and then other days too much stimulation is too much like it can actually change even within a person and i think that's why it's so so important to keep continually checking in and figuring out and asking questions and we're never going to have all of the answers and i think we kind of have to be okay with that as parents as professionals to just know that not everything is going to work all the time. It's mm. always going to change. The only thing you can count mm. on is that it's always going to change. And that yeah. will, you know, and that can be also, that can be really hard for those of us who are neurodiverse as well. <laughs> we don't often like yeah. things to change all the time. Changing. But, you know, I think that's why we like to focus on relationship and connection so much. You know, it's why I love the, you know, the, the podcast episode we had, um, last time when we were talking about connection and relationship building as being the focus of our parenting, because if you're connected with your child and the same goes if you're a professional working with kids, building the connection and trust first is so important because as you get to know a child or a person, you, you start to be able to read them better. So you can see oh. that something's a problem. And you can see the thing happening before it gets to a point where you can't intervene. You can, if, you can, if you can support them before uh, they hit the point where they've actually disconnected from their thinking brain and they can no longer function. Uh, um, if, you can, if you can get in there first, then you're, you're going to be much better able to support them through it and, and you know, then, then you're actually helping wire their brain in a way that means that they'll be able to cope better with that next time. Again, assuming uh, that everything else in the environment is okay and conducive to that so it's just it's it's really interesting to me that you can you know that that I mean it's why brains are so fascinating right like you can you can be faced with so many different scenarios just with the one problem (laughs) that it, it you know it makes it endlessly fascinating and often very frustrating especially when you're trying to help a child you know do something that they find really difficult um but it also you know I hope that it helps people to know that when you're try- it feels like you're trying a million different things and it's only working some of the time. Well, the sum of the time that it's mm. working is still helpful. is still good mm. that, that, you know, that you're supporting people through a hard time. Um, I did want to throw to you, Patricia, to talk a little bit more about what are some of the others? So we've talked a little bit about learning difficulties and there's differences within that too in terms of what we can find difficult. Um, so maybe even given we've touched on that, did you want to start there just about um, a little bit more about you know, what dyslexia can look like, what dyscalculia can look like, what dysgraphia can look like?
1: I'm just thinking too, before I go into that, also just to um, make our audience aware um, that just to be aware that there are, Seven different types of ADHD too. Yeah. I think that that's um, really important to, um, to 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 know, and you know, and one of the reasons why I, I think it is really important to know is that we have this uh, uh, this misnomer of that the child will be hyperactive that the, the hyperactivity is a sign of ADHD. But the fact that there are seven different types and and, um, and uh, with, with some of them, the, the hyperactivity is not a, a symptom, if you like, or a presentation of, of the ADHD. So to just be aware that, you know, you can have like, you know, as the seven different types, you can have the, you know, inattentive type, which is where you don't um, have the hyperactivity, then you can have the hyperactive type, then you can have the combined type which is the in the inattentive and the hyperactive which is what i have and then uh you and then there are there are different types of uh there's like one we can over um just and um i'm just trying to i want just to say yeah and there's, so there's the overfocus then there's one that affects your temporal lobe um there's also a limbic ADD. Uh, Then there's uh, one that they call Ring of Fire ADD (laughs) and Anxious ADD. So they're all really different. So the temporal lobe is that uh, with temporal lobe ADD, symptoms of classic ADD coupled with irritability, quick temper aggression, dark thoughts, mood instability, mild paranoia. They have learning and memory problems, uh, reduced brain activity in their prefrontal cortex, as well as irregularities in their temporal lobes. Um, and then uh, limbic is comes with chronic sadness that is not depression, negativity, low, low energy, feelings of hopelessness, worthlessness, low self esteem, and that's that that's tricky too because we know that most you know that uh, people with both autism and ADHD tend to suffer from uh, low self esteem anyway and and low self confidence. So yeah, and you know uh, um, even so something that just sprang to mind just then too was being aware that a lot of people they did ADHD sorry and ADDs also have um something called rejection sensitivity dysphoria which is the acronym for that is RSD. So um yeah but just to make yeah people aware so yeah so the uh so the most the oh I don't think it's I don't think to use the word most common is is wrong I would say to be aware of the co-occurring conditions that can sit with with autism and ADHD so the first one is um anxiety and depression that's 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 the first one and uh pretty much especially anxiety pretty much goes hand in hand with uh being autistic or being or you know being ADHD it's pretty it's um and that's because of the sensory issues. I, I really believe that the sensory issues and sensory processing issues are going to make all of us anxious anyway that are, that are neurodivergent because we're just having to cope daily with different, and all of us have different, different sensory issues that uh, will cause an environment to be stressful for us.
0: Yes, um, we've, we've talked and about that before too, whether it's like, is it, is it the person that has issues with anxiety and depression or is it the environment Hmm. that they're in causing them to have issues like yeah it's a a, i reckon nine times out of ten it's an environmental issue for sure yeah
1: yeah yeah that's right absolutely um yeah and then um so as we've just we've already mentioned previously uh just now uh dyslexia just and dysgraphia so dyslexia now, this is the thing too. So there are different types of dyslexia. So everybody tends to think of dyslexia as being, uh, you know, getting like seeing letters back to front or seeing, um, uh, well, yes, yeah, seeing letters back to front. Like typically I'm thinking of, you know, letters like B and D. So um, that's, but that's that's only one type of dyslexia. There's another. Uh, there's another type of dyslexia which uh, is called Erlen dyslexia, which is where um, so people won't see, uh, they don't see letters backwards and things, but the words like words actually appear to move on a page or they can like when there's a body of text they might see like rivers going, that's how I've heard people describe it, like rivers going through the 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 text on the page or sometimes like the words will jump around on the page so there's the so that's 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 you know just to be aware that there that there are different types of dyslexia as well so it's not just the standard one that you know people tend to think of straight away uh where they'll get you know like as i said um, letters seen back to front and things like that so uh typically they um you know will have um of of issues with spelling because um, of the fact that when they are reading text, that text tends to be moving around or if they they are seeing letters backwards. Um, Yeah, and then uh, dysgraphia. So dysgraphia has to do with handwriting and the way that our brain receives information and the way that we then transfer that information onto the page. So like to give our audience an example, one of um, my um, um, clients that I work with, the way she describes it is she, <clears throat> when she's writing like text, and she's in the high years of high school, so when she's trying to take notes and things, when the teacher's talking, <clears throat> because she has, her brain has the, the, has issue with processing that information and then getting down onto paper, like sometimes she'll actually like write over other words without, and, and, and without even meaning to, like she will just actually like literally write over text that she's written and that's that's because uh, the brain it's like it, again is a processing issue, but also is because the brain can't get the info the information, um, it, like down or is, or is having difficulty translating that the information that hearing just down, down into into written text, and then dyscalculia is as it sounds, so it's calculus, so it has to do with numbers, so it's your so it um, occurs generally, you know. With maths, but can also will can affect you and like science if you're doing subjects like physics and chemistry and things like that. So um, yeah. So and um, you know, and you could have like a combination of these with um, with with autism with yeah with autism and ADHD. So um, yeah, and, you know, dyscalculia can be why kids. You know, and with dyscalculia too, you particularly notice that, like with some of my clients, particularly notice when they're trying to do things like algebra can really make dyscalculia can really really play havoc when you're yeah. doing subjects yeah, like you're algebra. You the
0: then aren't you for sure? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think you know it's it's important to talk about because I think these are things that we don't often know much about, mm. and we kind of you know as a side we've been taught well we just rely on the teachers to teach things and then pick it up. But then when we train teachers, we kind of just briefly touch on these things as as though well, some some kids might have this problem, but we don't get any kind of training unless we seek it out afterwards on Mm. what that can look like. What does that mean for the way that they need to process things like all of those kinds of things, you know, are not sort of a natural part of the training for teachers. And so what we're relying on is, you know, in order to get that properly assessed, you need to see an educational and developmental psychologist.
1: That's right. Not
0: everybody has access to that, but also, you know, a a lot of the time if you're not going to the psychologist and asking for an educational assessment, they're not going to do one. (laughs) So Mm. there's like a disconnect a a lot of the time, and that's why Mm. uh, so often I think learning difficulties fall through the cracks because
2: Mm.
0: especially if there is already a diagnosis of autism or ADHD or both, that every difficulty that they have is kind of attributed to that label and then we don't dig any further to find out, well, mm. but how actually is does my child learn? Because not being able to, you know, write a story on a page or, you know, write a diary entry on a page can be to do with ADHD and, and the executive functioning being, you know, difficult to actually start a task and and sometimes... It could be the sensory issues where there's too many other things distracting them and they can't actually hear the instructions so then they don't actually know what to do. But it can also be the fact that they physically cannot write something on the page. And Mm. knowing which thing it is
2: Mm.
0: changes how we're going to interact with that child, changes how we're going to best support that child. And it's why I think it's so important to know that these things can also be going on in the background for our kids. Yeah. So learning aside, you know, we like to talk about learning a lot because we're both very passionate about education, but there are definitely other things as well that impact on our kids' ability to learn because their mental health has to be at a level where they're functioning in order to be able to take on any new information. So let's Uh talk a little bit. We've talked a little bit about anxiety and depression, and I think those Uh now we have quite a lot of awareness about that in society Uh now that we're talking about it more, which is a great thing. Um, mm. but there are some less talked about um and we I think they're really different presentations of autism, right? they things yeah. that often uh come along with the diagnosis of autism. Um where you know, but they're lesser known things and they're often depends on the professional that you see as to whether you actually mm. get any, any kind of information or indication that this could be going on. So often it's left yes. up to parents to really investigate these. Um, on their own and what I'm talking about is ODD which is oppositional defiance disorder Mm -hmm. OCD which I think we have a a little bit of a colloquial understanding of that but not necessarily a a deep understanding of what that means Um, obsessive compulsive disorder and then one that is I don't want to say recent but but the understanding of it is evolving recently Yes, that's right is is PDA with which is pathological demand avoidance Um, yeah um so let's start with let's start with OCD because I think this is an important one to talk about because it often gets thrown around as oh I'm a little bit OCD it's kind of the same Mm. as people say well I'm a little bit autistic a little bit (laughs) autistic yeah (laughs) right oh everyone's a bit like that everyone has their quirks and things well you know does it impact on your daily functioning does it impact on your health and well-being because that's often where the line is um did you want to talk to us patricia a little bit about ocd and why it's important to talk you know to understand that i suppose a little bit more
1: yeah so i think it's really really important to understand how ocd can really impact a person's person's functioning and i my experience with ocd with some of um the the people that uh, that I work with to support is I I and and the the correlation with autism and ADHD is I it seems to it comes about I, I for this is from my observation what I've noticed in my work that I think that it develops through a need to have control and um and then also because with autism and adhd we tend to hyperfixate anyway right so this is also so but it can be so inhibiting um you know uh for example uh one young lady that i work with she's uh she has several obsessive obsessive compulsive behaviors and one of them is to brush her teeth incessantly until her gums bleed mm. which is so painful and she can't even stop herself when her gums are bleeding mm. but it's she's developed and she's and some of this stuff too has developed around hygiene you see which mm. is it can often be another issue for people mm. with autism and adhd is that, mm. again it's this thing that they hyper fixate on this this one thing and she also also too has uh rituals like around so the brushing of the teeth Another one is washing her hair, uh, and like um, uh, washing her hair, and and like like washing her hands, right? right? So, but what it's what and this and with this young person that I'm particularly thinking of, they were diagnosed a little like late, a little bit later, like in their teens. So I uh, and I do wonder with her if those behaviours have developed as a means of having control because when you with, you know with with autism and ADHD, you know, often the environment is so out of control that these are things that you can control, but then they become like obsessive behaviors because they uh, give you uh, like they give you a sense of they actually give you a sense of peace and calm it's a, self, you. It's a self uh, sort it's, of
0: like a yeah. cycle almost isn't it because you're getting that yeah. feedback from doing the behavior that it's kind of like a mm. you know if you have adhd it could be a dopamine hit that then you mm. can't stop because you're mm. always chasing the mm. dopamine hit if you mm. have if you have autism and, and, and you know an autistic brain that that really thrives off the the routine and the structure well mm. completing the routine gives you that that rush that yeah. of like, yes i completely yeah. thing, and so then you want to do yeah. it again like it, yeah. it really makes sense when you break down the you know the individual things that can happen how they mm. how it aligns with a, mm. a brain that's already neurodiverse mm. um, but but i also think that you know obviously you know ocd is a condition that, that can exist on its own it's not always mm. occurring and no. the same thing with you know autism ADHD can exist without the ocd but but when it when it comes together it, mm. it can be i think much more problematic yeah there's there's multiple layers of things that you're trying to you know Mm. get to the bottom of um Mm. and I think that's why it's important to know because you know Mm. we we have functioning labels right we have these functioning labels with autism where we go well you're high functioning or you're low functioning and it's really problematic because it doesn't actually address what happens for that individual in the moment in different different circumstances because uh a quote unquote high functioning person can, you know, can often cope quite well with with different things and different situations. But then if they've had to cope and use their, you know, use their um coping skills and their, you know, often their maladaptive coping skills oh. to to appear as though they are doing oh. things and coping. Because that's oh. often what it is, they're appearing as though they're coping, but underneath it all they're really not. Oh, no. um, and then it will hit a point where, well, one little thing will happen and then they just cannot cope with that at all. And people will say, well, you were fine with this yesterday. Why is it a problem now? <laughs> and then deny yeah. those people the support that they need. And then if you have a, a quote unquote low functioning label, mm. then, you know, we, we sort of disregard their opinions on things. We disregard their, you know, their ability to do things because we, because we just look at that label and go, well, you can't do it anyway. But if you yeah. actually, if you give that person the support that they need in the way that they need them, if you mm. continue to do the why behind the behavior and you figure out what they do need, mm. then they'll probably be able to function very well. And, mm. and you know, do things that, that, that they love to do, and all those kinds of things. And I think um, you know, when you add in multiple layers of other conditions on that, that becomes even more important. Mm. Yeah. To figure yeah. out what what That's is right. actually going to help that person best.
1: Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, and you know, like you I using the word maladaptive coping mechanism is really good because that's what ICD is. It actually is this is the a thing, right? It's like, like if you if you apply yeah. our
0: same philosophy to just go w- the why behind the behavior. Behaviors are always yeah. trying to get a need met. No. And however the person works out how to get their own needs met, mm. then they will continue to do that behavior. Even yeah. when it's damaging to them and logically they can see that that's damaging. to them. And
1: they know, that's the thing. They know it's damaging Yeah. and they know that they shouldn't, but they can't stop themselves. And that's the really, really sad thing with the OCD too, is that then exacerbates your anxiety because yeah. you're trying to you like, know you should be doing able this to stop to Yeah.
0: yeah. You, then yeah. you start the negative self-talk and yeah. that becomes a cycle. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, 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 yeah,
1: it's exhausting. It really is mm. exhausting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yes. And then ODD, which is um, most people I'm sure will have heard of, which is oppositional defiance disorder. Now, this also is born from anxiety as well. So people think their child has been oppositional or being defined, and their behavior certainly can present. So it's all about presentation and the way mm. that looks. And again, it's a coping mechanism, yes. but it's often very much anxiety based. So, um, and um, trying
0: to exert some form of control over the uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, yeah, but also fear of failure comes into it as well. Um, and um, I'm sorry, I've just lost my train because I because I'm just what's happening in my brain right now is I'm thinking about oppositional defiance disorder, and then also pathological demand avoidance, which is different. So, um, so, o, so ODD is that, um, but. So it is similar to PDA in that people um, sometimes when they have demands and that placed on them, saying, they'll, they'll refuse to do them. Mm. So that's why people think that their children are being, like, oppositional or, or defiant or whatever. Thing,
0: yeah, I think the tricky thing with these two and why it's actually really good to talk about them at the same time is because mm. often the behaviours present in very similar ways. Mm. Very, very mm. subtle, the difference between the two. Mm. But the but the you know the strategies and the supports around how best to help those people are pretty much the opposite. Mm. Yeah. So if you have ODD, if you have oppositional defiance disorder, it's what that's that when the demand happens, you really have, like you push back on that. You can't you can't mm. handle that. Mm. But if you have some some really strong predictability in your environment, you have things mm. that are the same. You have some really good routines, and you have some really tight kind of boundaries so that you feel safe. Then you can often start to cope better with the day-to-day things and and, you yeah. know, and you're going to see less of those really explosive behaviors mm. pda on the other hand if you have demands placed on you that's seen as attack on your autonomy and then you will yes. fight back against that so if you have a, a an environment where you have no say and here are the boundaries and you cannot cross this line and everything's very enforced. Mm. they're going to kick off much, much harder because you are really yeah. reaching on their autonomy. Whereas if they have a lot of choice, if they have a lot of
2: mm.
0: direction and, and and you know, freedom in order to go, well, this is what I need and this is what I want to do and this mm. is the direction that I want to go in, obviously for a child you have to create safety around that. Mm. But as much choice as you can possibly build into their day is what's necessary. Um, mm. And while you might need a... a a routine in terms of an order of things that happen so that things are predictable mm. and safe, you also need to have lots of options within that and flexibility mm. Mm.
1: And, and pDA so- is no no, I was going to say pDA is really i 've had a couple of um, clients now that um, that i 've uh, worked with that um, have pDA. And it's it's really quite scary. It really, really is. It's it's really different, and that's why it's a different type of ODD. Is it actually is really scary. These kids are really go into fight or flight really quickly, yeah. and it really is like when they go into flight, it really is like they're 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 really you can see they're they're really really scared they don't know what to do they're completely out of control they don't know how to bring back in control they want to be in control the
0: disconnect between yeah brain brain because i think kind of what happens with what from what i've seen with pedia what can happen is that you can sort of see that the the disconnect between the thinking brain and the survival brain which often happens when our kids go into meltdown so that happens yeah. sort of for lots of these conditions right but I feel like with PDA, you can still see the brain in the background, like going, ah, yes. like this is not right, and thinking and kind of kind of watching it happen. It's like an yeah, that's story. right. That's
1: how and that's how they describe it to you. That's how the person will describe it to you. That's what it's like. But they can't stop themselves yeah. in the moment, so they yeah. want to be. A, they know that, you know, in inverted commas, I'm going to say that they're doing the wrong thing because mm. like, that's mm-hmm. how it's perceived, yeah. but they can't actually stop themselves from doing the behavior. So if, if they're like acting out, they're hitting or they're biting or they're maybe running because you know, they'll, they'll like, they'll, they'll run or they might like, I've seen it where, you know, they've smashed mm-hmm. windows and things like that. Mm-hmm. They know that they're doing, but they can't because they're so, they're just so overwhelmed at that moment in time that they cannot bring in anything to stop them mm-hmm. stop the behavior mm-hmm. um, yeah, and it's um yeah and it's extremely extremely pDA is really uh, the reason why I feel so sorry for people with pDA it's very very difficult for them but it's also very difficult for the family as well because mm-hmm. it can often cause a lot of fear within the household because you if when the person Reacts when they're put under demands that really stress them out. They then have like can quite have such an extreme reaction that mm. um, you know, um, particularly like if they're younger siblings and things like that, it can be quite frightening for them too. Mm. Um, mm. Um, yeah, and it's and it's understanding that um, yeah, it's that it's the demand that's when it, it's when a perceived demand is placed on the person. Um, and, you know, and and again, I think that it then comes back very much to anxiety and very much to fear of failure, because they almost can't make, uh, a like sometimes they have such difficulty with making a decision because they don't want to make the wrong decision, or they don't want to fail somehow, or they don't want, and it's what and of course, I think it as well. Often,
0: often you, is, you know, making a decision for yourself then means you're placing a demand on yourself to follow it through. Yeah. <laughs> so then you want to do it. Yeah. have <laughs> mm, So I've yeah.
2: heard
0: that that can be really tricky as well. That it's it's you know, it's not always other people placing demands on yourself either. It can be yourself. And I think the other thing that um, that I've noticed, and that you know, obviously there'll be more research that comes out around this, but they're often very highly intelligent people too. Mm. And so and 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 very intuitive. And so if you are going, oh, okay, well this person has PDA, so I'm just gonna frame it like this so that I get them to do what I want, they will see mm. right through that and still yeah. feel mad and still. Free free free. Me. Like yeah. there's you know, and and you know, I've often I've there's a really brilliant book called The PDA Paradox by um Harry Thompson. So if you haven't read that, I would recommend getting that book because the way that he articulates his experience of the world is incredible and very insightful. Mm. Um, and really very helpful for uh, for us to understand what's happening for a person with PDA, because it is a very different uh, experience than than perhaps, you know, well, again, it's, you know, every neurodivergent brain is different, right? So we all have very different experiences of the world. But, you know, the way he describes it is it's like there's this kind of like monster guarding their their autonomy in their brain. And that if any kind of hint of a threat to that autonomy comes around, then the monster comes out and the monster monster. is very intelligent. The monster is watching all the time and picking up what's most important to the people that are going to attack your autonomy. They're picking up, um, you know, the right words to use. They're picking up what things specifically to destroy that's going to upset that person the most and really stop them in their tracks so that then they can no longer threaten your autonomy. And so when we look at it like that, you know they've they've broken the one thing in your house that is irreplaceable and you know you you, it it feels like that that person is targeting you is doing it on purpose and Mm. that's because the the way that the brain works is kind of doing that but Mm. it's not a choice it's not something that they're deciding upon it's you know and and Trying to come back to that understanding of why and what's the behavior, what's the behavior getting for them? Because often we're kind of got, we're throwing our hands up in the air, going, you know, what's this child getting out of, you know, X, Y, and Z? Yeah, yeah. We have to dig really deep a lot of the time to find that answer, but it is mm. really, really worth that work because you know there's a you know there's a, there's a client that I've worked with that that has PDA, and you can really see the massive shift she's made in a short period of time since they've really understood that. That PDA is what she has and mm. the way that her brain works and supporting that it means that life runs much more smoothly and she you, they get much more enjoyable times together because the enjoyable times is driven by the things that she really loves to do
1: Just so yeah and she's mm. motivated
0: by that mm. and as long as there are no conditions and no you know things attached to that then, then it can be a really really great time so you know you can actually have wonderful life regardless of how mm. your brain works um, mm. but we just have this kind of understanding in society that well if you're not if you're not productive and contributing with you know paid mm. employment and all these sorts of things that 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 you're not worthy and actually no every person is worthy regardless of everything each mm. person is worthy right. of each person is worthy of you know getting to do things they enjoy and you know working out how we can help our loved ones access those things Is really important, really important, and sometimes as parents we forget that because we're just in it all the time, and it's hard. It's a hard slog, really, regardless. But but you know, especially when they have difficulties that that you know we don't expect will happen Mm. when we have children. But you know, helping them get to that place, so that that all that work that you're doing sometimes feels like you're not getting anywhere. But there will be moments Mm. where you'll know. You'll know that it's it's you know, you really are doing the right thing for your kids.
1: And I often think too, it's because you want you don't want your children to suffer, so you want to take the pain away. Yeah. And that yeah. that's what I've noticed with working with people with PDA, that their parents want to take the pain away, such so like they want to take away what their child is struggling so much with because their child is such a beautiful person. Mm. And they can see that their child is such a beautiful person, and then when you know the pda kicks in and like the monster takes over Mm. right they know they also know too that their child is in pain that they're really conflicted they know like they that you know like the, the person themselves like the child knows that they like that they should be stopping this behavior but they can't because it's like the monster's taken over and they just cannot just and the parents, I think, that often like that's what I sort of seen, is that they just want to be able to remove all that stress and anxiety that their little one is feeling and going through, uh, because if they could take that away for them, they would, because they feel like it's like life is such a struggle for them, and they don't want life to be a struggle for their child. Like you know, they want it to be you know easy or um, you know easier um and i think that's like that's what i've found too is that parents often like really feel like really feel uh you know for their child because they're really really wanting to be able to help and sometimes it's understanding you know like you're saying with your the young girl that you were talking about the steps that she's made because once they've got an understanding of how to work with it? Then that then mm. that person will be so much happier.
0: Mm. The dynamic shows mm. too, and and you know when your children really see the lengths that you'll go to to support them and to advocate mm. for them. Um, I think just that act in itself is really powerful too. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing other th- thing isn't
1: it? It's very hard, and the other thing too was that was actually when you were. When you when actually when you start talking about the PDA too, another thing that I think that we should touch on and I know that you'll know about this too because of your background in early childhood teaching as well is twice exceptional students mm. and yeah. what twice, twice exceptional mm. is and 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 what it means because these kids really struggle as well and they really really struggle with things um, anxiety is massive in kids with the the, the twice exceptional or uh, or t- or sometimes it's called two t- e. Um, yeah. So, do you want to t- mm. do you want to explain what it is and a bit talk about, about, that. about
0: Yeah. So, um, you know what you're talking about there is is when you have a, a diagnosis of autism, ADHD, some sort yes. of divergence, along with giftedness. So, when you're very very yes. highly intelligent. Um, And so giftedness in itself, without the, you know, without the secondary thing of autism, ADHD, without the twice part giftedness in itself can be, can be, you know, a detrimental condition in a way, because we think about it and we go, oh, well, they're just super smart. That must be great. It must, must be easy. It's not because when you enter the traditional schooling system. The, you know, the traditional schooling system is set up for the people in the middle of the bell curve. So if you're on the Mm -hmm. bottom end of the bell curve and you have, you know, a low IQ or if you have learning difficulties and things that doesn't match up with the middle, you're going to have trouble. But the same is true on the other end. If you are highly, highly intelligent, you're also really going to struggle in the schooling system that we have because you're often not catered to, especially if it's not recognised early. And so, you know, often our solution in schooling systems is to put them up a grade, which causes all mm. sorts of social issues. Yes, socially. And, you know, it, it can impact yes. on their, you know, on their enjoyment and their, you know, mm. the, the fulfilment they get from school. Um, and, uh, you know, also if you kept in the same level, you, you can get really, really bored really quickly and then you get up to mischief and then you get labelled the naughty kid. So there's all sorts of things that can happen um for for children who are gifted and that's it, it, there's why there's often an argument for putting them in a specialist program because then you're often with peers who are experiencing similar things um, if you are twice exceptional you also have that added layer of also having a neurodivergent brain so you will see things differently yeah. you experience things differently you might have a real difficulty in getting started on a task because you have executive function issues once you get started on a task, you're going to blaze past everybody because you're really intelligent, right? So there's, but but there can be the, the way that work presents. It's why often giftedness can get missed in a twice exceptional child because they kind of they kind of get balanced out. It's like they have super high IQ, so they often don't get diagnosed with anything because they cope. <laughs> they kind of cope mm-hmm. on a regular level because their their mm-hmm. their intelligence helps them to do to make workarounds with their neurodivergence. And then same with their neurodivergence, kind of keeps them at a level where it doesn't, you know, their giftedness kind of doesn't shine through. It can also mean that they're really specifically gifted in one particular area. So that might be that you know they might have a very special interest in something, they might have a real affinity for something. Might be like music. They could be gifted in music and be mm. an absolute child genius. That's what you you know you see the movies about child prodigies and things like that. They're probably twice exceptional <laughs> when they yeah. have this really high intelligence in this area, um, but maybe struggle with social skills or maybe struggle with you know um daily life living skills and things like that that's so, right yes yeah, so yeah. it can be and again it's it's as diverse as the people that are to us exceptional right but um mm. it, it's it's kind of its own little category in that there's there's going to be difficulties in different ways for those children mm. right? for those people mm. Mm.
1: yeah yeah because they yeah because of the, having the giftedness along with the neurodivergent brain mm. or, you know, yeah, mm. or yeah, which is, is, it's is really, really... It's really
0: interesting because we often talk about, you know, autistic people, neurodivergent people, um, you know, being able to recognise patterns really easily, being able to sort of be outside the system and question and say, well, why, why, why do we do it that way? That doesn't mm. seem to make sense. Mm. It doesn't seem to work with anyone. And whereas we're just kind of going, well, it's just, we just kind of did it, didn't even think about why. Yeah. Um And then if you're gifted, you're often recognising those things super early and Mm. questioning the teacher super early, and that can have ramifications as well, depending on the environment that you're into. Yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly. I think it really kind of leads well into, I think, overall what we want people to understand is that, you know, one diagnosis is often not the whole story. Mm. It, it happens so often that there are other things going on for our kids that it, it really is worthwhile continuing to question what's going on. But I think we talk about, I mean, we haven't even touched on, which we may touch on in a future episode about, you know, um, different identities and, and how you can have, um, you know, we, we talk about people who experience oppression and that, you know, women often experience more oppression than men, that, mm. you know, people of colour experience more oppression than Caucasian people. But, when you have, when you were a woman of color, there's two Mm. overlapping identities that are causing issues and you're going to have more difficulties than a Caucasian woman, for example. Mm. So the same thing can happen. What we've talked about tonight is a lot of um, sort of uh, mental health and and developmental, you know, neurological conditions. Um, Mm. So when you have overlaps of those different things, it changes things for you. It changes the game. It means that you're going to experience more hardships because there's layer upon layer as opposed to Absolutely. You know, um, just one, one thing being a, a difficult for you. Um, mm. and, and I think that just means that we need to work harder as people around the person with the difficulties, that we need to peel back those layers more often. We need to be asking mm. why more often. We need to be digging into it continually yes. and going, okay, well, we've helped with this part of it. Now what's the next thing that might be tricky that's coming up? Because we've now fixed this part of the environment what's the next thing that's coming up because that might shine something a light on something else that we didn't realize was a difficulty because this thing was so prevalent Um, 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 that's a really good holisticness i think why we talk about being holistic about things is really looking at the whole person and the labels often help us in in you know to to get a, a an idea of what might be going on for them because mm. often they can't articulate it for children of you know we work with young children so mm. well I do so you know often they can't articulate what's happening for them so no. you kind of have to guess yeah so having some labels can often help you guess more accurately yes but it's still a guess yeah. you still have to keep yeah. asking why right
1: yeah that's right and I love what you said too that you've got to it's almost like, it is almost like an unpeeling of the layers and to be looking and to see why is this going on and why is this going on with, with my child or this person? Because, you know, you work like in early childhood and I typically work with kids that are older. Mm. So sometimes you'll think you've got the whole picture and then something else will come up like, you know, the realisation of dyslexia or dysgraphia yeah. or, mm. or something like that and they will go, oh, that's why my child is struggling or yeah. that's why they've you know or like you know if you know i mentioned you know mentioning something like school refusal and things like that you know something all that um or school avoidance that you know if they're they're struggling with um those things as you know as well as um you know having autism or ADHD seeing with that that that's just such an you know as I said before in the beginning when I was talking about what could be because you know in the classroom that they're really you know they'll they'll be struggling with sensory stimuli and then if they're struggling with one of these other uh, neurodivergent conditions you know life literally can be hell for them and then we and haven't even
0: really touched on yet the the trauma that can come from the experience that's right of that because that's, yeah. a, that's a self-fulfilling loop too that's going i to think the problem which again you know we we are probably running out of time for today but we, we i think trauma more in be, depth about that
1: <laughs> i think trauma would be a good a good podcast mm-hmm. for us to do mm-hmm. and to talk mm-hmm. about that mm-hmm. as well as um what you were just saying because just that's almost like an, that like an
0: overarching theme over yeah because when you experience difficulties often the feedback that you're getting from having those difficulties can cause more
1: that's right yes exactly mm-hmm. and yeah and and cause um a lot like you know significant trauma then leading into ptsd which or can, secondary which can exa- it can either
0: sort of exacerbate things yeah. where, where things are more prevalent or it can do the opposite, where it where it forces people to mask, which can be a traumatic process in itself. So it's so, yeah. Yes, we definitely can can talk further. And I think that you know this is one aspect of it. And then you know looking at you know further at you know self identities and expression and, and things like that would be mm. another layer that we can discuss next time as well. Because mm. I think mm. um, it, it, this is the thing that there's so many there's so many pieces to a puzzle of a person, and you're probably never going to complete that puzzle I think I think we never will because we're people and we're always growing and we are always learning and we're always developing and you know and and finding other coping mechanisms that may work better than the last one but might still be maladaptive. like this it's always a process right yeah but you know fitting a puzzle piece to the picture as opposed to to, you know darkening up a piece and making it harder I think if we can contribute some kind of understanding when we're working with a person Mm. Um, and then, as parents with our children, if we can if we can contribute to them understanding themselves in any way, it's always going to be a positive thing. Um, yeah, and I think that's what we're working towards is just more understanding.
1: Exactly. Absolutely, I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that that's yeah so critical. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I think that um we'll finish up there because I think that's a good point to finish at and. Um, as always, when we've had a discussion, we've then come up with more topics that we
0: can cover. <laughs> <So that's, laughs> this is a never-ending loop, isn't it? There's always more to talk about really, really That's good. why we love yep. these conversations, isn't it? Um, but, yes, we, as always, we hope that, you know, the listeners have found some information here that's helpful um, some things that might have them questioning maybe what else is happening to mm-hmm. my child it might help you to seek some more answers um, of course you can reach out to either patricia or myself um, with all the links in the show notes we have our oh. email address we have our socials there whichever is your preferred method of communication we are always happy to hear from you um, maybe it's triggered something that you'd like to more, learn more about and like us to talk about please let us know if you have a topic you'd oh. like us to talk about um, Or reach out to either of us for support um, because, you know, what we love to do is help people figure out little pieces of what might be happening for their child.
2: Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Well, thank you,
0: Sammy. Thank you, Patricia. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you for
1: listening in to Nurturing Neurodiversity. With me, Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions.
0: And me, Sammy-Ann from Mathamaze. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star review and share us with anyone you think may benefit from our discussion.
1: To continue the conversation, come and find us on our socials. All the links to find us are in the show notes and we'll hope you, you will join us again next time.
0: Where we'll continue to learn how to create a truly inclusive world for us and for our children.